All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, that's going to be our main text this morning, and we're going to get there in just a moment. So while you're turning to Joshua chapter 2, which is in the Old Testament, if you have trouble finding it, you can look in the table of contents, but I always encourage you to follow along with what we're reading. But while you're turning there, I want to remind you of how we ended our worship service last Sunday morning. Uh, Ricky Williams, one of our shepherds, was up here doing the shepherd prayer. Uh, He said a few words, but he initiated a challenge for our congregation, if you remember. The challenge was to spend the month of December in prayer. Now, a lot of you are thinking, well, I already pray, but this is a specific type of prayer. Uh, We asked you to take a look at our seven commitments, our vision as a church, and to read over those, think about them, and then pray specifically that we'll be patient and that we'll listen as God leads us into a new year and how we're going to live out this vision and what that looks like for us to be obedient and for us to listen to where God is leading us. So this week, I've been looking over the seven commitments, and I've been reflecting back on the year 2018 and really the last year and a half since I've been with this congregation. Uh, We spent a lot of time in uh, ministers' meetings, our staff meetings. We spent a lot of time uh, talking with the elders, going over these seven commitments and praying and thinking and strategizing on how we're going to live it out. So I was thinking about our commitment number five that says we will train and develop disciples who passionately follow Jesus and are equipped to teach others to do the same. I remember interviewing for this job and seeing these seven commitments and looking at that commitment right there and thinking, yes, I want to be a part of a church that's committed to that. Making disciples, training others to to mature in their discipleship, right? And then others who will teach others to do the same. So one of the things that we did this year was we challenged you with who's your one. Who is one person that you've prayerfully considered that you can begin a discipling relationship with? We brought in Dr. Looney uh, back in March, and he did some disciple-making training with us. So we take commitment number five, and we're saying, how do we live this out? And we want everybody to actively be involved in making disciples. You could look at commitment number six, that we're going to have this outward focus on our community and sharing the love of Jesus. And I was thinking about 2018, thinking about ministries like Highway 80 and how we help with the chapel services there. I was thinking about caring and sharing and how it helps a lot of people. And a lot of you have helped contribute to caring and sharing financially. Uh, And then you volunteer and you spend time out there. And we got a new building this year for caring and sharing. I think it was this year. It's all kind of a blur to me as I get older. But that's a big accomplishment. And that's helping a lot of people. We're having an outward focus on our community through ministries like that. Uh, Commitment number seven, we'll proclaim the gospel to the lost world. And I look back on this year and I think about all the groups that went to Mission Upreach or to Ghana. and We're supporting missionaries in Cambodia and we send people and we support missionaries. You know, we're actively participating in sharing the gospel to the lost all over the world. And then you could backtrack and go to commitment number two, and we're going to be this loving family full of hope and joy and excitement for Jesus and for each other. And there's so many different areas that we're trying to do that to try to increase this fellowship and this love and this family atmosphere. And one of the things that popped in my head was just a few months ago, we added several more connect groups because we're trying to broaden the scope of all the people that we can reach. Right? So a lot of great things are taking place, but I always go back to commitment number one. 
We will cultivate a deeper love for God that motivates and compels us to action, living each day in his service. Uh, Really, commitment number one is not something you just accomplish and then you're done with. This is something that's an ongoing project, if you will. Deepening our love for God. That's where it begins. If we are working on that relationship with God, that will motivate us and lead us into the future. Uh, With the elders and the staff, we sat around back in the summer and we looked at this and we prayed and we talked about things that we're doing and things that we can do. And just this fall, we've spent a lot of time going through the Gospel of Mark, doing these church-wide challenges, things like quiet time or scripture memorization or writing out your own faith journey, your story, and sharing it with others. You know, all of these things that we're doing this year and that we'll do next year as a church, we're trying to take very serious our vision and our seven commitments, and we're asking the question, how are we going to live this out? So last week, Ricky said, why don't we just spend the month of December, praying. How many of you have been to Carmela's Santa Land? Anybody been to this, you know, the light display? Uh, I went last night. I took my daughter. Uh, We got there early because I thought if we get there before 5.30, that's when it opens up, we won't have to wait in line. Well, apparently, anytime you go, you're going to have to wait in line. And so we, we were backed up on 259. So that means when they start going, you you move forward. You move forward, you stop, you move, you know, we're doing that the whole time. And, and I told Addie, you got to be patient, we'll get there. Do you want to just leave or do you want to stay? She said, let's stay. But then she kept saying from the back seat, Dad, can't you go faster? <laughs> and I said, I can't go faster than the person who is leading in front of me. I can't do that. And it's the same is true for church ministry. God is the one who sets the pace. We can't try and go faster than God. We need to make sure we're going at God's pace. So that's why we're challenging you this month to consider what it is, the vision that we have, the seven commitments that we have, and just really spend some time praying. And maybe your prayer is just pray for the ministers and the elders and deacons and those who will will really put some action behind some of these commitments. Maybe that's part of your prayer. I'm not sure what it is. But let's make sure we're going at God's pace and we're spending some time praying. All right, so that's your challenge. I want to remind you of that. Now we're going to switch gears, and we're going to jump into our sermon series for this month. It's Christmas time. I mentioned last week a lot of churches, a lot of preachers are doing sermons centered around the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. And our theme for this month comes from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. Joseph has this dream. An angel appears to him, right? And they said, Mary's going to have this child, name him Jesus, and then in verse 23, Matthew tells us there's another name. He doesn't go by this name, but the name is Emmanuel, and that's fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah. And Emmanuel, which I'm reading from an NRSV, so that's why I'm spelling it with an E. I know most of your versions have Emmanuel with an I, but I don't think it matters. What matters is what the name means. Can everybody say it with me again this week? God with us. Let's try it one more time. God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. And so what we're looking at this month is how do we see God with us? We we see it in its fullest expression in the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. But even before Jesus is born, how do we see God with us? How is God working to bring the Messiah into this world? And so you could look back at the beginning of Matthew and you see the genealogy and you have all these names. 
there's a few women that are mentioned by name, which would have been uncommon to have women in a genealogy, and one of those names is the name Rahab, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So what I want to do this morning is just do a brief case study on Rahab. We're going to look at the Old Testament, we're going to look at her story, and what I want to ask and what I want to think about is how do we see God with us through a woman like Rahab. So Joshua chapter 2, we're finally here. We're going to start in verse 1. I'll give you a little background. Moses is gone. Joshua is now leading the charge, and the Israelites are getting ready to finally leave the wilderness and enter into the promised land. Verse 1, then Joshua, son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim, I'm being really careful how I pronounce that, as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and spent the night there. Okay, you're doing your first reading on this, and at first glance you might be thinking, wait a minute, out of all the places they could go in this city, why are they going to that house with a lady that goes by that description? Well, I think there's a few answers. I, I don't think there's foul play going on there. I think there's a reason why God has led them to this house. One of those, you see in Joshua chapter 2 and verse 15, her house was on the outer wall of the city. There was this giant wall that surrounded the city, a double wall, and she was on the outer part of the wall. She is literally on the fringes of the society, of the city. She's on the margins. Rahab lives in the margins of the city but that will work in their favor because when they need to escape, they're already on the outer wall and they can just be lowered down the window. So maybe that's one good reason. Another reason is because of her profession, and I don't mean this to sound ugly or funny, but her neighbors may not have been suspicious when two men show up because that's maybe what they would have seen on a weekly basis. So maybe that's another reason. And maybe the most important reason is that Rahab has put her faith in the God of Israel and Yahweh. She has become a person of faith, and we'll read about why she came to believe in just a moment. So I ask, you know, why her house, but who is she? Who is Rahab? What do we know about her? Well, she's from Jericho, so that means that she's a Gentile. That means that she grew up worshiping pagan gods before she found out about the God of Israel. She sold her body for money. That's what we know about her. That's what little description we have. She lives in the margins of her own city. But in Joshua chapter 2, she has a name and she has a voice. Other than Joshua, Rahab is the only person that's named. Think about the two spies. We don't know their name. Think about the king of Jericho. We don't know his name. Think about the soldiers that he sends. We don't know their name. But Rahab is given a name here. And she has a voice which would have been uncommon in that world. And she has a name and a voice, and God will act through her in this scenario. So look at Joshua 2, verse 2 through 7. This was from our scripture reading this morning. I want to read it again. The king of Jericho was told, Some Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. Then she said, True, the men came here, but I did not know where they, where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. 
She had, however, brought them up on the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men pursued them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So there's the initial story of Rahab. She takes in the Israelite spies, she hides them, and then she sends these soldiers of Jericho out on a wild goose chase. All right, this is an interesting story. She, she puts her own life at risk. But when I'm first reading the story, I'm thinking, why her? You know, couldn't God have used someone else? Couldn't God have used someone with a more honorable profession? And then I was reminded of this story that I read several years ago. Uh, this woman tells it from her perspective. Uh, she had to go by a store And it was in a rough part of town, in a rough neighborhood. She parked her car, ran into the store. It was nighttime. She's running back out to her car. And then she realizes in her rush, she locked her keys in the car and her phone in the car. So she's stuck out in the streets in this rough neighborhood at night by herself. Her heart rate's going up. She's a little nervous. She's praying and she's asking God, please send someone to help me. And then pretty quick after that prayer... An old rusty car pulled up right beside her, and then this big man who looked really scary got out of the car, and she's thinking, God, why him? You know, out of all the people that could have shown up to help, why him? And then he said, can I help you? And she said, yeah, can you help me break into my own car? And he said, not a problem. So within a minute or two, uh, her car door was open. She was back in, and she was so excited, she gave him a hug, and she said, thank you, you're such a nice man. And he said, I'm really not a nice man. He said, I just got out of prison this morning. I served a two-year sentence for auto theft. (laughs) And then she prayed again, and she said, thank you, God, for sending me a professional. So (laughs) perspective, right? But I think about Joshua 2, and I think, why is God using someone like Rahab? And maybe, maybe it's because the life that she's lived, the profession that she's held, when these big, scary men, these soldiers show up at her door, she knows how to handle them. She spent a lifetime dealing with probably sleazy, rough men, and she's not afraid of them, where most people probably would have been. And God is bringing her along. She doesn't know much, right? She's not an Israelite. She didn't spend time in the wilderness. She wasn't there when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Her morals, her ethics, they were in a completely different place. But what she knows is who God is and that God is the God. That's what she knows, and God is going to use her and work through her and bring her along. And then she lies. You know, we had this part about her lying to the soldiers and sending them off, and then she takes care of the spies from from Israel. What do we do with the lying part? Uh, Consistently in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the wisdom literature, in Jesus' teachings, in Paul's letters, the Bible tells us that lying is not okay. We need to be honest people, people full of integrity. So I'm not going to get into all the ethical things. She knows what she knows. God's bringing her along. And if you're with the Connect group and you're following our discussion guide, you can have a fun discussion on that tonight. But we're going to move forward with this story right now. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, and following the rest of the story, she goes up on the roof to meet these spies and talk with them. And here's her confession. Here's how she came to believe, starting... Verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that dread of you has fallen on all of us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. 
For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan and Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no courage left in any of us because of you, the Lord your God. Listen to this confession. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven and on earth below. So here she has it. Here's, here's where her faith comes from. She said, we've heard the stories. We've heard about the Red Sea. We've heard about some of the other things. Everybody's afraid because we know something is happening. And then she makes this confession, your God is the God. She put her faith in God even before the spies showed up. But what she knows about God is very meager. She has a limited knowledge of Yahweh, as I've already mentioned. She doesn't have the commandments or anything like that. She just knows what she's heard, and that's enough for her to believe. And so her plan was to protect her family. She makes a deal in the rest of Joshua 2 that when they come back to take over the city, she wants her family to be safe. Not just herself, but her family. All right? And then, you could, and then she helps the spies get out, sends them on their way, and then you get all the way to Joshua chapter 6, they come back and they protect her family. In Joshua 6, verse 22 through 24, they remembered Rahab, they remembered her family, and she was saved. All right, that's the story. There you have it. There's the story of Rahab. So I added this on the PowerPoint. That's it. She doesn't take up a whole lot of space in the Old Testament. She's not really a major character. She played a role. She helped the spies. I think they would have taken over the land either way. But we just don't know a whole lot more about Rahab. She's a minor character. But what has always amazed me is that she's mentioned three times in the New Testament. This minor character almost becomes an important major character of faith when we get to our New Testament. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, has this famous chapter in the Bible, James chapter 2, on faith. It's been controversial for several hundred years because, you know, the relationship between faith and grace and what James is saying is if we believe and we say we believe, there has to be some action behind our faith. Otherwise, it's just lip service. We're just saying words, but we're not really putting our life into our faith. And so he uses two examples in James chapter 2. Abraham. And Abraham makes sense. We know who Abraham is. The Bible spends a lot of time using that name and telling his story, starting with Genesis 12 and beyond. So Abraham makes sense, but then towards the end of James chapter 2, the other example he uses is Rahab. He says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So out of all the people that James could have used as an example of faith, Rahab the prostitute, he makes sure that he keeps that title there. There's no question what she was and what she did, and yet she's an example of faith. And it doesn't say because she lied, it says because she took care of the spies. She put her own life at risk to take care of the spies. So James uses Rahab as an example of faith, and then you get to Hebrews chapter 11. It's this famous chapter, James 2, Hebrews 11, are well known for their examples of faith. And then 
Hebrews 11 is considered the Hall of Faith chapter. You have all these characters like Noah and then Abraham and Moses and all these great characters from the Old Testament. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31, and guess who the Hebrew writer uses as an example? Rahab. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So twice now in the New Testament, this woman named Rahab is used as an example of what faith looks like, what faith in action looks like. And if you kept reading in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32, the Hebrew writer says, I don't have enough time to tell you about guys like David and Samson and Samuel. Well, he might have had time had he not spent time on Rahab, right? But for whatever reason, Rahab was important enough to use as an example. And then we're back to where we started in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5 in the genealogy of the Messiah, the genealogy of God with us, of Emmanuel, and Rahab's name is mentioned. She's a mother there. There's a lot of other mothers in this genealogy who are not mentioned. But for whatever reason, Matthew felt it was important to include the name of Rahab. That's what we know about her. Three times she's mentioned in the New Testament. So the question I'm asking is, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about God with us through a person like Rahab? What does this show us about God? How do we learn more about God being with us? And I think one big bullet point would be that Rahab is a testimony of God's grace. The New Testament, remind, the New Testament writers go out of their way to remind us of who she is and what she did for a living. And if God can use someone like her and reconcile someone like her, redeem someone like her, that, the way she was living was not how God created her to live. But God wasn't done with her. Speaking of story and writing out your story, her story wasn't over yet. And I think we also learned that God is paying attention to the margins. If you look at your Bible... You know, you see the, the white space on the sides or at the top or the bottom. If you ever write a paper for school, there's always the margins of the paper. Right? It doesn't seem like the margins take up a whole lot of space, but they're important. Because of the white space, because of the margins, it helps us focus on what's in the middle, focus what's on the text. Right? We don't pay close attention to what's going on in the margins, but they're important. And consistently, with characters like Rahab, what we learn about God is that God is paying attention to people who live in the margins, to people like Rahab who are living on the outer wall of the city and probably normally goes unnoticed. Joe David was telling me a story earlier this week. You know, we talked about Hagar last week. This Egyptian slave girl who also is a minor character who says, you are the God who sees me and the God who hears and so he was telling me a story about a time when they were in Honduras. They were there for a medical mission trip and had set up their spot where they were going to work. And, you know, hundreds of Hondurans are coming to receive their help. And there was this house kind of off in the distance, and they could see the roof, but they didn't pay much attention to it. Didn't really, you know, think much about that house. Well, as the week went on, someone said, I want to go down there and meet the people that live there. And when they went to that house, they discovered there was a mom that lived there, and she was in some deep pain because her son was suffering with some major medical problems, and so because of that relationship, they were able to send some people down there to help her, but 
Uh, he was pointing out that that night at the Devo, when they were discussing the day, reflecting on the day, that someone pointed out, we've been here all week, and we didn't even notice that house. But God noticed. And because of that, I think God led someone down there to meet this woman. Often we don't notice or we don't pay attention to the margins or people who are marginalized or we want to, we have the desire to, we just don't see it all the time. But God is paying attention to the margins and people who live in the margins. And what we want to do as a church is provide you opportunity to help people living in the margins. And one of our big areas, our big mission areas, is Mission Upreach Honduras. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to offer you an opportunity to have some more knowledge about an area that you can help in. So I'm going to invite Jeff to come up here and share that with us, and then I'll hop right back up here. I appreciate that story from Joe David, and I remember that. And if Ricky Williams is here, Ricky Williams was one of the people that went down there to that house, and he gave that young man his hat, and it was a UT hat. And if you know Ricky, that's a big gift for Ricky. We went back a year later, and that boy still had that, that University of Texas hat on. Uh, great story. That's not what I'm up here to talk about. Uh, thanks, Jody. Last week, Adam got up here and introduced a, a video, the first short video in a series of three videos you're going to see. The second one's going to be this morning uh, for a, a child sponsorship through Mission Upreach. That video was real short. It left you with a lot of, a lot of wanting more information. This morning is going to be the same way. It's going to leave you with more wanting, wanting more information. Next week, there's going to be a really good video, but let me tell you a little bit of background here. When we talk about Mission Upreach, most everybody in here knows Mission Upreach, has heard us talk about it. You know that we are the home church for Phil and Donna Waldron, the sponsoring church for Mission Upreach, although there's many uh, support churches. We are the sponsoring church. And if we talk about DeSeo, DeSeo is a program within Mission Upreach that we work in public schools. So we are invited. We have a staff that goes into public schools, and we do devotionals, and we talk about uh, God, and we teach them, we teach them uh, the things, the, the spiritual aspect of their education that the leaders of their school are not capable, capable of doing. It's an amazing program. Uh, God has truly blessed this program. But let me tell you about a specific school called the Los Angeles School. You probably don't know this, but for the last two years, we have been, our church, individuals from our church, so this isn't part of the missions program, individuals from our church have supported and sponsored the Los Angeles school. So we've been paying for the programs that go in to the school there. Um, many of you out here have been to the Los Angeles school. Many of you today know kids in the Los Angeles school. Randy and Jordan uh, really were instrumental in, in sponsoring in this sponsorship. They go multiple times per year. They take groups with them. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity. So this is a different child sponsorship than what you normally get because we know the kids. You know, in fact, my family has already selected some of the kids we're going to support. And they're kids we know. It was a family ordeal. We're looking at their pictures online, and, and my kids are picking. Let's get her. Let's get... And so we're offering that to you. There's about 65 kids, roughly 65 kids, in this school that need sponsorship. And basically what this does, this provides their uniforms, their books, their school supplies. It supplies the program of DeSeo. It pays the expenses for us to be able to go into this school and to be able to work 
Um, there's so many other aspects. If, if you've been to, to Mission Upreach on a mission trip, you've been to church there. Well, it's in that community, and we bus these families. There's a lot of families that go to church there because of the DeSeo program. We're able to bus them in, and, and we go to church with them when we're there. They're a part of, the, of that congregation, which it's a pretty big congregation. The home church is, 300 or so people. Um, and so this is an opportunity for you and your family if you want to, there's going to be able, you're going to have opportunities to communicate with these kids, write letters. You're going to have the opportunity to go to Honduras, go into these schools, work with these kids that you select. Um, you don't get that opportunity with any other child sponsorship. So I wanted to make it real clear that this is a school we've already invested in. I know Rick Williams, our elder, made signs. So there's signs on the side of this little school that's not a fancy school that says Los Angeles School. And we put that in there. I, there's, a, there's a number of y'all that have been in there and served. Uh, Randy Jordan, would you stand up real quick? Adam, Kristen, would y'all stand up? We will be in the back after services, and we will be helping you with any questions. If you want to go ahead and sign up, if you've been to, y'all sit down now, if you've been to the Los Angeles School and you know the kid you want to go ahead and sponsor, I'd go ahead and do it because they're starting to be taken up. Um, but this morning we'll be sponsoring. Next week we'll be out in the back to help with the, uh, with the sponsorship. So this video that we're about to watch, it's a short video clip, and really it's just highlighting a lot of really important statistics that really highlight the difference between what these kids live with and what's their norm compared to what our norm is. So this is really going to be just a quick video of a lot of statistics. Next week there's going to be a, a really detailed video.